great. If you've not got a Bible, do head to the back and grab one. If you've got one on your phone or in front of you, then if you want to turn to Mark chapter 2, uh, we're going to look at um, a little, little story there. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. We'll just get there in a moment. <clears throat> Let me just say uh, welcome to you. It's great to see you uh, this evening. Uh, if you're uh, new to St. Paul's, we would love to get to know you, so do, do please say hi. If you're looking for a spiritual home or wondering about joining a church, we'd, we'd love to just uh, help you to find the right place for you to be. Um, my name's Chris, as I've already said, I'm one of the pastors here, and um, yeah, it's a real privilege to be able to speak to you all uh, this evening. Um, let me begin with a question. I don't know if you can think back to a day in your life or to a person that you've met that was life-changing. So a day in your life or a person that you've met that was life-changing. Have a think. You might be sat next to the person that changed your life. The, 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 recent, the event might be recent. I want to tell you about one day in my life. It's an incredible Wednesday. I don't know if Wednesdays can be incredible, but this Wednesday was incredible. Oh, that's the, that's the eject, uh, I don't even know what my grammar is. Anyway, incredible Wednesday in September 1997. So that's a little while ago. Was anyone here not born in September 1997? Put your hands down. Oh my goodness. Really? Oh dear. That was quite a long time ago though, to be fair. Um, so I wandered into a church hall in a little town called Tewkesbury in Gloucestershire. Not a very nice church hall, a little bit imposing. Some church halls can be like that. This one was built in such a way as that all the rooms were on one side of the church hall. It was kind of a long corridor, a long kind of uh, rectangle. And this long corridor was just along one side, incredibly narrow. So literally really difficult for two people to get past, kind of fake coming towards each other. So I had to walk into this church hall, walk down this long corridor to the room at the end. Um, I walked into something called the Alpha Course. Um, it's the first uh, Alpha Course I've been running at that church, and, and I walked in not really knowing anyone uh, and sat down. Um, that Alpha Course was the reason that I came to faith in Jesus. But also on that night, I met this incredible woman called Nell. Some of you will know who Nell is. She's now my wife. So that was quite an incredible Wednesday, I think you'll agree. On, um, in 1997, I, I, I met Jesus, and then I met Nell. And we got married, and it seems to be all happily ever after at the moment, which is good. And hopefully it will be for a long time to come. But, you know, the thing is, is that it can be that one day, or one event, or one encounter that can change the whole of our life. It can be that one person can make a difference that's really significant. An encounter with the person of Jesus changes lives. Every encounter in the gospel with Jesus had a, an outcome. Have you ever thought about that? Every time someone met with Jesus, something happened. It wasn't always positive for that person maybe, but there was always an outcome. An encounter with Jesus changes us. Now, tonight we start a little series in the evenings looking at people who were transformed by an encounter with Jesus in the gospels. And the person we're looking at this evening is a paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. So let's turn there, shall we? And we're going to read this story together. Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, 
carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mats the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Father, speak to us through your word, we pray. May we encounter Jesus this evening. The story is found at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, he's been teaching and ministering in the towns and villages around where he lived. Which is, he, he grew up in Nazareth and Capernaum was the kind of bigger town nearby. And he'd obviously moved there to live. That was his home. Um, the crowds have already met Jesus in Capernaum and he'd healed lots of people and done incredible things. And they were really chasing him around the countryside. But they heard that he'd come back to Capernaum and they knew where he was staying. So they absolutely descended on there uh, like ants on a piece of toast. It was just incredible. The place was smothered and covered with people. Um, is this booming okay? Is this all right? Is it a bit irritating? Are we okay? Sorry, I can just say that I think it's the wind coming in. Um, so, so many people have arrived at his house, there literally isn't room to move. Um, people are in the doorways, in the windows, they are surrounding the place you cannot get to Jesus. Uh, because they're there because they want to be healed. They're there because they want to hear the good news that Jesus was talking about, about the kingdom of God. They're there because they wanted to meet with someone who would transform their life. That's what drew the crowd. Jesus drew the crowd. And wherever he went, Jesus drew the crowds. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the one for whom their people were waiting for. The one who would redeem the whole of Israel. Who would bring them back uh, into relationship with God. And they were hoping, because of who people were saying Jesus was, that he might be the one. And that's why they flocked. You know, people today might not explicitly say that they're on a search for God. You know, if you look at there some recent statistics that came out that said that, you know, people believe in spiritual things, but maybe not God necessarily, or certainly not God in the way that, that particular faith groups or certainly Christians would, would say. But I don't think human nature has actually changed a huge amount in 2,000 years. I think human nature is really similar, because I think we still ask the questions about who we are. I think we're still asking questions about, is there hope for my future? Is there more to life than I've experienced up to this point? You know, we cry out when we're in pain. That's not changed. We cry out for healing, for the pain to go, or for someone to rescue us. We get angry at injustice. When things go wrong and don't work out the way they should, we're, we're quick to cry, that's not fair. Because there's something in us that says there is something or someone who is fair, who is just, who is right, who is holy. We are looking for something more than the life we see, feel, taste, smell and hear. We're looking for something more. I wonder if anyone in this room can think of someone they know in their family, in your workplace, in your neighbourhoods, who you would say is definitely on the look for something more to their life than they currently know. 
Why don't we raise a hand? Anyone who knows someone who's in that kind of position? Quite a few of us. We know of people who are like that because human nature is like that. We're looking. I would say we're on a search for God. The writer of Ecclesiastes, this wonderful verse, Ecclesiastes 3, says that God has set eternity into the hearts of humanity. God has set eternity into the hearts of humanity. St. Augustine, and I often quote him uh, in, this, in this case, he said this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. The human heart is looking for God. I don't know if we've been in a part of a conversation recently where people are asking questions and looking for more. Or maybe we've, we've been with people who are, who are looking for hope in all kinds of things, but maybe aren't finding it. I um, was running last week. I went for a run on the way home from work. And on the way home running, I, I, I just jogged past a, a guy sat on a bench uh, with a can of lager. And, and I just felt a prompting in my heart to stop. So I, I stopped. I made sure I stopped my time on the run because you know, I'm very competitive. And stopped to talk to him. And, and I sat down next to him and introduced myself and we got into a conversation and I felt God had given me a word for him and that word was simply that he had that God had hope for him that this wasn't the end that there was more to life than he was currently experiencing and he smiled at me he looked at me he just held out his can of beer he was he didn't speak very good English and he pointed his can of beer and says here is my hope and I said I said I think there's something better for you than just that and we had a really great conversation and, and I was able to pray with him and pray that God would fill him with hope, that God would provide for him and meet with him. As the same, on the same run, actually, I wish I'd put the picture up. I was uh, running along the canal and there's a picture of a skull and crossbones. It's not a very nice picture, really. And next to it is, is the, the, the phrase, dead before we live. I believe there's hope. I believe in a, in a saviour who comes to bring life before death as well as eternal life for the future. You know, there's a hunger in the human heart for more. Why do you think that people give up? Because they can't find what they're looking for. You know, we come back to this story is that, um, is that Jesus is gathered and, and people are coming because they're thinking, here's where we can find hope. Here's where we can find healing. Here's where we can find the message of the good news that God hasn't given up on us, that he's for us and he's broken in once again like in times of old, that maybe he'll, he'll deal with the oppression of the Romans. Maybe he'll bring back uh, true worship in Israel. Maybe he'll restore our community and the greatness that we had. They're looking for hope. They're looking for more. I really believe, my experience of, of those I know who are searching is that so many people are on the same journey. We might not explicitly name it as a search for God, or we might not turn up to a meeting or whatever it might be, but we're hungry for something more. Douglas Coupland, some of you may have heard of him, a famous writer, atheist writer. In the end of his book, I can't remember the name of the book now, it's just left me. In the end of one of his books, he says, um, the secret is, the truth is, I need God. The secret is, the truth is, I need God. But I can't tell others, I can't admit to it. But there's a hunger in the human heart. The journey that people take from searching to finding Jesus usually involves friends. Usually involves someone alongside them. You know, friends like the ones we meet in the story. Friends like the ones we see here who carry their friend to Jesus. You know, friends like you and I. And I want to ask us a question, and really to be honest, if you remember nothing else tonight, I want this just to hit your heart and stay there. And the question is this, are we willing to rip the roof off to get our friends to Jesus? 
Are we willing to rip the roof off to get our friends to Jesus? Mark in this story focuses not on the crowd, but on the one individual. The one individual who's transformed. So what happens to him? The first thing is he's transformed. He's transformed because he's transformed through forgiveness and he's transformed through healing. Um, The man is lowered down to Jesus, so the roof is taken off. We'll come back to that in a moment. And the first thing that Jesus says to him is, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, don't get me wrong, that's a good thing. You know, being forgiven is great. But if you're the friends who've taken your, your paralyzed friend to Jesus, who's healed all these kind of things, and he, you lower him through the roof, probably costing yourself some money, causing all kinds of inconvenience, I don't think the first thing you hoped to hear was, your sins are forgiven. That, that's fine as a secondary thing. You know, get up and walk should have been first, I think would be the first thing you would think. Hang on, Jesus, that's not what we came for. But the greatest need we have is, is the need for forgiveness. The greatest need we have is that God would change our hearts, not just the outward circumstances of our lives. We might come to Jesus for a number of reasons. The paralyzed man came because he couldn't walk and had no choice. His friends brought him. But we might have grief in our life or pain or confusion. We might be asking questions about faith. We might be in all kinds of places and we think, well, God will help me. And God may well do. God answers prayers. God is gracious. I didn't come to Christ when I came to faith in 1997 with with pure motives. I came to feel better. I thought maybe God will help me feel better. Maybe God will make me feel less guilty. Maybe God will deal with the hunger in my heart. But what I found was a saviour who wants to change me from the inside out. Our inner lives matter and Jesus sees them. Jesus doesn't just see the outward appearance, but he looks at our hearts. And if he were to look at our hearts tonight, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus say if he were to look deep into our hearts? Here's another question for us to ponder. How are our hearts tonight? How are our hearts? You know, Jesus sees us and loves us just as we are. But he would ask us, how are our hearts? How are the things on the inside, not just on the outside? Jesus wants to forgive sins. Is forgiveness something you need tonight? Is forgiveness something that we're desperately struggling with? Maybe it's our own forgiveness. We just don't believe that God would forgive us for what we've done. As we come to the table, we take the bread, remembering his body broken. As we drink from the cup, remembering his blood shed. Jesus gave his life that we might know forgiveness. Even in this story, so early in the Gospels, even in this story, Jesus is pointing to the cross. Son, your sins are forgiven. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In this story, he's pointing to the cross. If we need forgiveness, the place to go is the foot of the cross. We find mercy and grace in our time of need. So the man's lowered into the room and Jesus forgives his sin which causes him a whole heap of trouble. In fact, it's the, first, it's the first of many occasions that would lead to his death because they say, no one can, no one can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. Not only can I forgive sins, but I can heal people. Jesus is in effect saying, well, I know I agree with you. No one can forgive sins but God alone. You're absolutely right. That's why I'm forgiving sins and healing people. Jesus is, Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, You want to see what God's like? You look at me. I am the visible image of the invisible God. The pronouncement of of, of forgiveness was one of the first, was the first of many actions that took Jesus to the place where he bought our forgiveness on the cross. 
Tonight we can find forgiveness if we have been brought here tonight by friends. If we have come knowing we need him. He sees our hearts. He recognises our need. And he says, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus isn't just about us praying a prayer and then we just kind of amble along until one day we meet with him in heaven. Jesus comes to transform us through and through. What he does in our hearts, he does to our whole lives. Uh, Our hearts, when they're changed, transform the whole of us. That's why he goes for the heart first. It doesn't just transform the outward appearance. He forgives his sins and then he heals his body. He transforms this man's life utterly and totally. You know, healing is a sign of God's presence, the kingdom breaking into this world. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom and he demonstrated it. And in this instance, he demonstrated it through forgiving sins and healing a body. God heals people today. In Luke's gospel, when he tells this story, Luke uses this lovely little phrase at the start of the story. The power of the Lord was present to heal the sick. The power of the Lord was present to heal the sick. I believe the power of the Lord tonight is present to heal the sick. We're going to pray later on. We'd love to pray for you if you need healing. So the man is transformed. That encounter. That encounter changed his life. He was never going to be the same again. Never going to be the same again. But how did he get there? How was he able to encounter Jesus? It was his four friends. And that's what I want to focus on tonight. Again, are we willing to rip the roof off to get others to Jesus? Are we willing to do what it takes to get people to Jesus? The paralyzed man wanted to be healed. His friends took him to Jesus because that's what they thought would happen. But imagine their horror. They arrive at the house. They're too late. They can't get in. They probably can't see Jesus, let alone get near to him. The crowds are surrounding the home. The doors are gone. They're they're blocked up. The windows are blocked up. There's just no way there. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm quite British, and I think that queuing is a really good thing. And that queue jumping is probably tantamount, you know, the same, you know, life sentences for queue jumping, I think. It's terrible. Particularly when you're at Alton Towers and someone queue jumps. Just, it's terrible. Anyone with me on queue jumping? Three of you. Great. few of you. Queue jumping is a terrible thing. I would line up at this, at this point with my friend. I would say, well, we can't do anything else. We just have to join the queue. Just stand still. Have we got sun cream? Have we got enough water? You know, we all okay. Don't, no one move. And, and I don't have any of this kind of reserving spaces. You stay in the queue until you've, you know, seen Jesus. That's how it works. That's a terrible thing to do. It's a terrible way. Jesus doesn't want us to stand in queues. He doesn't want us just to wait. Jesus wants us to think, okay, we can't go in that way. We're going in another way. So what do they do? They climb on the roof. They go up. And the roofs were flat. That's often they would, there'd be flat roofs made of clay. So they go up and they think, well, we'll drag this poor guy up. What this paralyzed man is thinking. They take him up onto the roof and they rip the roof off. Some commentators even say this was Jesus' house. This is where he lived. I think it might have been Simon Peter's house. Regardless of the fact, it wasn't theirs. And they tore the roof off. They had some audacity, didn't they? They had absolute boldness. They were just like, we're not stopping. Crowds will not stop us getting to Jesus. No one will stop us getting our friend to Jesus. How on earth does that apply to us today? Or if you're me, you might have given up when you saw the crowds. They had determination and perseverance. That's what faith is. Faith is in the midst of overwhelming odds, when it seems like all has gone wrong, we keep on keeping on. 
we don't give up. That's what faith is. Jesus saw their faith. I don't think the paralyzed man at that point had anything left to give. He'd been tossed around and thrown about, lowered through a roof. Jesus looked at their faith and said, son, your sins are forgiven. Faith is shown by being willing to rip the roof off. They impressed Jesus with their faith. And I believe if we have a bold, audacious, determined faith, then we will see people transformed by Jesus. As I said earlier tonight, we talked a little bit about launching Alpha. Um, Honestly, I had a guy who spent two years listening to my questions, walking alongside me, a true friend. And he's the reason I went to Alpha. It wasn't necessarily all that he said, but it was who he was. He was a friend who was willing to take me to Jesus, to do what it took to get me to Jesus. How many of us can think in our lives of significant people? Maybe it's our parents, maybe it's our brothers or sisters or our friends or a a colleague or whoever it might be who've helped us come to Jesus. I want to be like them. I want to imitate their faith. Um, Launching Alpha, you know, we want to see lives changed. We, We want to talk about who we bring. I don't think the paralyzed man would have met Jesus if his friends hadn't brought him. If the friends had given up when they saw the crowds, who knows? If his friends had decided that the roof being taken off was a step too far, a bit too extreme, a little bit too committed, who knows? But they didn't. They kept going. And they're heroes of faith because of it. How do we bring our friends to Jesus? What do I mean when we're talking about ripping off the roof? I think, it, it, firstly, it's just that we're willing to do the hard graft. We're willing uh, to get on our knees in prayer. We pray for those we know who aren't yet followers of Jesus. We pray for those we know who don't yet know him. It's the kind of prayer that's dogged and determined, that perseveres even in the midst of, doesn't seem like anything is changing. Who can we pray for to bring to Alpha? Who can we pray for that we're uh, living with? Who can we pray for that we work with? that they might find Jesus. That's where it begins. That's the hard work. We get on our knees and we pray. I want to encourage us to pray for those we work with, we live with, we commute with, that we keep on praying and don't give up. Who could we bring to Alpha? Let's get praying and bring them. We start with prayer, but we continue with action. Um, I think the thing that uh, for this guy who's on the mat, that he's dependent on his friends. And, and actually there is a responsibility to each one of us that we might lead our friends to Jesus. Now how do we do that, really? It's quite hard, isn't it, sharing our faith? Have you ever just found a time when you've tried to talk about Jesus and it's either you've answered the question so badly you think, I've not just led them, uh, left them where they are, they're now further away from God than they were before. I think maybe we've had those experiences and we just felt, I just couldn't do it. I don't think I could say anything. It's just too difficult. Um, I want to ask us firstly, um, that people are firstly interested in the Christian faith when we influence them. And that doesn't always involve words. I think it does, but not always. Um, Last week, maybe you remember, Mark mentioned a guy that had become a Christian on the men's weekend that he was speaking at. Um, And Mark had asked him how he'd come on the weekend and why he'd come to faith. And he said, well, I just watched my friend live his faith out. And then he invited me 
to come to this event. And I thought, I want to be like him. So I went. You know, two words that are really important that I want us to remember from this. One is influence and one is invitation. You know, these, I mean, I guess in the, with the paralyzed man's case, he didn't have a yes or no choice, seemingly. They just brought him. And that's great. We just want to bring people. We want to have that kind of passion. But in everyday life for us, it's all about influence. Who do we influence? How are we influencing people? How are we encouraging people to live in the right way? Um, and as we influence people, we stir an interest as we live out just the Christian life, as we forgive others as we've been forgiven, that provokes a response, an interest. As we don't treat people, with, we don't gossip about people, as we don't uh, tear people down, as we try to build people up, that provokes an interest. As we offer to pray for people when we just have an opportunity to do that, whether they're in need or pray for healing or whatever it might be, that provokes an in- interest because we're influencing. And everyone has the ability to influence just those we're sat with. Even those who think they can't influence are influencing. Helping people in making decisions. And we want to influence people uh, to find Jesus. Our influence stirs an interest. And it's the interest that gives us an opportunity to invite. Are you with me? Influence, interest, invitation. Good. I think I lost myself in those eyes at some point. So who are those around us who are asking questions about God? Who are the friends that we're with? As an aside, you know, do we have friends that no one else is friends with? Do we get alongside those who are on their own, who are maybe, you know, others have just aren't interested in? I think that's one of the wonderful things about Alpha and one of the things I love about church, actually, is it's made up of people from every bit of society, every bit uh, of, of our community. And Alpha's welcome to anyone. You know, anyone can come. So who can we invite? Who can we begin to pray for? It probably just begins with a simple invitation to come and hang out, spend time together. And you grow the influence, which stirs the interest. But sometimes we're put off by rejection and opposition, aren't we? You know, we've invited and they've said no. We've, we've, we've asked and they've not come. Or we've hoped and it's not happened. But we don't give up. Like the friends, we just are willing to rip the roof off to get our friends to Jesus so to finish an encounter with Jesus changes everything the paralyzed man met with Jesus and was never the same again he was forgiven because Jesus looked at his heart and knew what he needed first he was healed because Jesus cares about every part of our lives the outward things matter to him the reason that we come to him doesn't have to be perfect Jesus forgives him, heals him, transforms him. One encounter changes his life. But the only way that he got to meet Jesus was because his friends were willing to rip the roof up to get in there. Who are your friends? Who do you long to see come to faith in Christ? Who do you wish they would who would you wish would meet Jesus? Who do you know that's like the paralyzed man in desperate need? Are we willing to do what it takes to get them to him? Will we invest our money, our time, our energy, our home, our life, that others might be changed? Will we put ourselves out that others might know Jesus? Every single life changed matters to God. The crowd of hundreds is there and Mark focuses on one. 
God sees the crowd and focuses in on the one. The individual matters. Who we influence, who we invite matters.